Well, let's talk about that history mm-hmm. for a little bit. Because I think for a lot of people right now, especially a lot of really young people, mm-hmm. um, this uh, combined with some some earlier uh, Israeli military actions um, the, earlier this year has been one of the biggest sort of displays of IDF brutality that they've seen that they mm-hmm. might they might remember seeing that they've been you know maybe they were little kids when the other stuff happened. Uh, you know, you, you said you've been studying this stuff for 40 years. D- do you think, as somebody who has been involved in this and has been observing this, especially from a uh, point of view of somebody who observes in terms of massacres and in terms of international law, um, do you think what's going on right now is qualitatively different than what has gone on in the past, or is it just a, it's a term in terms of degree? Well, it's a good question. In terms of sheer numbers, yeah. even though the numbers are going up very rapidly now. Probably be different by the time we finish uh, this episode. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. In June 1982, when Israel invaded Lebanon, the invasion lasted for three months, from June to September. Okay. June, July, oh, three and a half months. Ju- uh, June to September. By the end, Israel had killed, the estimates are, fifteen to 20,000 Palestinian and Lebanese, mm-hmm. overwhelmingly civilians. So in terms of absolute numbers, this hasn't yet reached that threshold. However, that was over a three-and-a-half-month period. We're only entering now the second week. Yeah. Secondly, it's the sheer concentration. Mm-hmm. Gaza is... The way I look at Gaza, its width, five miles, is the distance I jog every morning at Coney Island Seashore. The circumference of the seashore is five miles. Its length is less than the marathon. Its length is 25 miles. A marathon is 26.2 miles. Mm And one of the astonishing figures by day three of the attack on Gaza, by October 10th, Israel had dropped more tonnage on Gaza than the United States did in any year during the war in Afghanistan. Just how dense is Gaza? Is the is the uh, two million people living in that area? Two point one million people. Mm-hmm. It's among the most densely populated in the world. It's more popu- uh, densely populated than Tokyo. It's also one half a child population. Yeah. One half of Gaza, one million or more people in Gaza are children. They were children who were born into a concentration camp. That's not my hyperbole. So if you allow me. Of course. Mm-hmm. Baruch Kimmerling was an eminent uh, sociologist mm-hmm. at the Hebrew University. And I'll let you read it so it'll sound more authoritative and objective than if I read it. She so does just, a really good job at sounding, just read <laughs> sounding that when she reads The that sentence line. I underline. In fact, the fence around the Gaza Strip was completed a long time ago and the Strip has become the largest concentration camp ever to exist. The largest concentration camp ever to exist. That's Gaza. It's an overwhelmingly refugee population. Mm -hmm. It's people who fled, who were expelled from Israel in 1948. 
about 70% of Gaza consists of refugees, descendants of refugees. It's an overwhelmingly child population. It, a half the population, according to humanitarian organizations, suffers from the expression they use is, quote, severe um, food insecurity. Mm-hmm. 50% of the population is unemployed. 60% of the youth population is unemployed. When you add all those factors together, or all those discrete facts, if you try to get a comprehensive picture, well, the conservative Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron, he called it an open-air prison. Um, Baruch Kimmerling said it's a concentration camp. And that's where these people have been trapped since 2006 for 20 years. Uh, I was surprised, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised. When I mentioned on the Jimmy Dore show, when I mentioned nobody can go in and nobody can leave, with the rarest exceptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if you have a medical condition and you want to go to a hospital, say, in the West Bank, you can't leave, except in the rarest exceptions. One of, the, um, one of the producers in the program, he said, really? I never heard that. Oh, people don't know. They don't yeah. know you can't go in and I, you can't go out. I mean, it, it's actually something, something that I've been sort of shocked by in the past couple weeks. I don't know what day. Yeah, I guess like week and a half, couple mm-hmm. weeks. Is that like, I think people have a vague notion of like, there's Israel and then there's Palestinians in there. And there's some kind of problem, and maybe there's going to be two countries, or maybe there's going to be. Uh, but the, like, the, there is no notion that like there is a very there is a strip of land that is um, completely surrounded by other countries, and then the sea, uh, and people can't leave. I mean, people they, they can't leave, I, and they I, can't go. I can't go in. I've tried. I'll just uh, the other. I, as I said to you earlier, I start to reread. Um, what I wrote, and so I'm just going to quote, I was dealing with the issue of whether or not everyone speaks about Israel's right to self-defense, and I was speaking about what about, do they really have a right to self-defense? So I'm going to just read the passage. I'm going to excerpt on my substack. Don't ask me what a substack is because I don't know. I have these three Fair. young technicians who made me a hit on social media, but I don't even know what social media is. So, um, I'll just read the passage. Uh, as a result of the blockade, Gaza has been blockaded for two decades, since 2006, As a result of the blockade and recurrent military assaults, Gaza's population has been, quote, denied a human standard of living, while some 90% of the water in Gaza Mm -hmm. is unfit for human consumption. Quote, innocent human beings, most of them young, Sarah Roy, she's the world's leading authority in Gaza's economy. Mm-hmm. Sarah Roy from Harvard University. Sarah Roy bewailed 
innocent human beings, most of them young, are slowly being poisoned by the water they drink. One million children being poisoned by the water they drink. Unquote. They were not only consigned, but also literally confined to a slow death. Quote, when the place becomes unlivable, people move. So said the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. This is the case for environmental disasters such as droughts or for conflicts such as in Syria. Mm -hmm. So when there is a disaster, humanitarian or political, people move. But now listen to what it goes on to say. Yet this last resort to move is denied to the people in Gaza. They cannot move beyond their 365 square kilometers territory. They cannot escape. Neither the devastating poverty nor the fear of another conflict. Its highly educated youth do not have the option to travel, to seek education outside Gaza, or to find work. Anywhere else beyond the perimeter fence and the two tightly controlled border checkpoints in the north and south of the Gaza Strip. With the Rafah crossing, that's the crossing in the south with yeah. Egypt, with the Rafah crossing between Egypt and Gaza almost entirely closed, except for a few days per year, and with Israel often denying exit, even for severe humanitarian cases, the vast majority of the people have no chance of getting one of the highly sought sought after permits. They can also not leave across the sea without the risk of being arrested or shot at by the Israeli or Egyptian navies. And they cannot climb over the heavily guarded perimeter fence between Israel and Gaza without the same risks. That's Gaza, to which I add, I was referring to the Israeli, this is the conclusion to the chapter on the Israeli assault in uh, July, August 2004, Operation Protective Edge. To which I add, or I conclude, the people of Palestine embraced Hamas as it launched violent reprisals against Israel. In the climacteric of their martyrdom, Gazans chose to die resisting rather than to live expiring under an inhuman blockade. The resistance, now remember I'm talking about 2014, the resistance was mostly notional as the rudimentary projectiles, meaning the Hamas rockets, the rudimentary projectiles caused little damage. 
So the ultimate question is, do Palestinians have the right to symbolically resist slow death punctuated by periodic massacres, or is it incumbent upon them to lie down and die? Everybody says Israel has the right to self-defense. But what about the Palestinian right to live in the most literal sense? Now, there is a literal sense, that is, water is poisoned, half the population is suffering from severe food insecurity, and then there is the more what you might call poetic sense, that is, the right to dream, the right to hope, the right for, to have a future. These are people, those folks, who burst through the gates of Gaza. They were, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 38. Oh, you're much older. I didn't realize that. I was going to put you at 22. How old are you? I'm 34. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? No, I'll say this. I'm 23. Okay. If you could imagine yourself when you were back in college, those, that's the age of the people who burst through that fence. Most of those militants were in their 20s. It was their first time they had ever been out of that concentration camp. And it's easy for me to imagine, I know it sounds like a B-movie script, so you'll <laughs> forgive me for sounding cliché-ish. Every, aside from the daily horror of living in that concentration camp, Israel, for extra effect, every, periodically, it launches these military massacres on Gaza. Mm -hmm. Uh, Operation Cast Lead, Operation Pillar of Defense, Operation Protective Edge. Believe me, as much as I've studied it and as much as, I, as I've tried to commit the names of the massacres to memory, I can't. There are so many, I literally, okay, if I were Noam Chomsky, I would have the memory to do it. I don't. And in each of the massacres in Operation Protective Edge, Israel killed about 1,400 people, Gazans, about 350 were children. Operation, did I say, what did I just say? Protective, Protective edge. edge. Oh, incorrupt. Incorrect. You see, I told you. I'm not. Operation Cast Lead. Operation Cast Lead was from December 26th, 2008 to January 17th, 2009. Israel killed about 1,400 Gazans. Of, uh, of whom 350 were children, Operation Protective Edge, which was the passage I just read, was the conclusion to the chapter on that operation. Israel killed about 2,200 Gazans, of whom 550 were children. And on that night before October 7th, I... I'm willing to say with a very high, I can never say certainty, I'm not a 100% guy, uh, I'm a 99.5% guy. <laughs> with a high degree of certainty, I could say, every one of those young men who burst through the fence um, 
the night before, they went. They knew they weren't coming back. Yeah. There was no possibility they would come back. There were a section of them, a, a portion of them, who took the hostages. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was almost certainly some sort of division of labor. You're staying to divert attention, right. and we're going to take them back. So about 1,500 of them, they knew this was their last day on God's earth. And you could say with a certain amount of probability, high probability, each of them the night before, they went to their mother, hugged her and kissed her, probably didn't tell her anything because this was an unusually, quote-unquote, professional operation where there were no leaks, shockingly. Then they hugged their father goodbye. They hugged their siblings goodbye. And then inside of them, they thought, tomorrow I'm going to exact my revenge for all the miseries of the last 20 years of my life. I'm going to get my revenge. And then, and I will get the revenge for my sister who was killed, my brother who was killed, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, who were killed during those Israeli massacres. It's hard to say what happened on October 7th, how much of it, we still don't know, probably, Mm -hmm. I guess we'll never know. How much of it was planned in advance and how much of it was spontaneous fury and rage unleashed on that day? If you, you know, I sat down, as I said, to reread my book because my mind had completely put it behind me in 2020. I literally didn't post anything on it. I had a very close friend, Sana Kasim, who was my webmaster, and she did it for free. She's a very brilliant chemist, lives in uh, Athens, and a wonderful mother, a very special person, an inexhaustible energy. And she had worked for me for free for years, handling all the the, the, uh, PayPal, handling the, um, my website, because I don't know anything about any of that. And she would say to me every once in a while, Norman, you're not posting anything on Palestine anymore. Norman, why aren't you writing about Palestine? And I used to say to her, come on, Sana, it's our website. It's not just mine, so if you want to post something, post it. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't want to have to confront her with the fact I've given up. Mm. Uh, so it was really out of my mind. Not in the sense I'm out of my mind, but it, I had put it behind me. Yeah. So I sat down and I started to reread it, the book. And all I talked about the young men's anger and fury. All the anger and fury came back to me. Mm. The lies, the 
perfidy, the suffering, the horrors. I, I really, I just couldn't control it. I'm only reading it like 30 pages a night because I can't read it. So if you want to check out the rest of our interview with Dr. Norman Finkelstein, you can head over to patreon.com slash truanonpod. It's a wide-ranging discussion with him. I don't know, something like two and a half hours or so. It was a lovely rainy Friday afternoon, and you can go listen to all of it and everything he's got to say over at patreon.com slash truanonpod. I'm Liz. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.